Rick Jensen on 1150 AM, 1017 FM, WDEL. Dr. Hera Wright-Smith, who uh, lives in Wilmington, has just put out a great book regarding some of the history of Wilmington. It's titled African Americans of Wilmington's East Side. On this program, you've heard from a number of people who are doing good work on the East Side. And, and I like to bring that to your attention because usually in the news, and it's not a fault of the news, it's just, you know, what news is. When we hear about the East Side, more often than not, you hear about shootings and, and such. We, uh, we had, for example, Xanthia Oliver, Councilwoman Xanthia Oliver, uh, on, on many times. I consider her to be a friend. Um, and we've also had other folks who live in the East Side talk about what it's like there and what they want out of living in the East Side. And what Dr. Smith has done here is put together this incredible compilation of, of photographs as well as the stories of the people going back decades. I mean, we're looking, you know, back to the early 1900s on the East Side. It's an incredible historical perspective, and there's something in here we will talk about over the next 15 minutes that really stood out to me. I think of it as an icon of a horrible era of our country. And it's titled The Negro Motorist Green Book. We'll get to that right now, uh, Dr. Wright-Smith. Hera, thanks for being on. Thank you for having me, Rick. So what was the impetus of writing this book? Well, um, I was inspired uh, in many ways. Uh, First, as part of my doctoral studies now over 15 years ago, uh, I conducted in-depth research of black churches located on Wilmington's east side, right? Um, And I wanted to understand the important contributions uh, the churches provided to neighborhood revitalization, uh, political advocacy, some of the economic resources, social and spiritual uplift that uh, congregations provided for uh, African-American residents that live there. Um, I've been a longtime member of Bethel AME Church, mm-hmm. uh, one of the oldest black churches on the east side. So what inspired me the most were the interviews and conversations with residents during my doctoral work. And what emerged uh, were common themes. The most prominent one was that I always heard that the community at, at the time you mentioned uh, in the intro Uh, during segregation period, 1900s to the 1960s, it was a very self-sustaining community. So even though uh, people lived in this segregated uh, section of town, closed off from opportunities and resources, the residents showed a fierce determination to protect one another, Um, and which is why I noted a statement of that in my introduction uh, from one of the elders in the community um, about that, how they lived next door to each other and they just took care of one another. So uh, the black affluent families and professional uh, families that live next door to blue-collar and working-class families, Uh, the community had many black-owned businesses that provided medical, dental, legal, funeral services, and other uh, services to the community. And then the relatives and neighbors kept watch over each other. So although I finished my doctoral requirements, uh, I knew there was another story to tell, and images of that story to uncover. So I was compelled to write the book to contribute to telling the rest of this story um, 15 years later. Okay, so what is generally the rest of the story? So the rest of the story um, is what you see in the book. Um, So what I tried to to do was to say, here's how the community 
uh, looked. Um, here are the early settlers in the community. Um, I outlined the black-owned businesses that existed there, um, historic churches, community institutions, uh, and, and other vital institutions to the community. I really think that um, we have something to learn from this. And one of the things we have to learn is that this was a community that had the opportunity to, um, they had the most influential voices of all of us, both prominent figures and even the unsung. And they made the sacrifices necessary for what they thought were right and just political movements during segregation and had a willingness to be on the front lines for that change. Uh, so I think it's a good example and representation of what not only used to be, but uh, what we all have a potential to be um, as we think about um, growth of um, particularly vulnerable communities today. You describe a vibrant, uh, thriving, yet segregated community on the east side of Wilmington. Uh, now it's a very, very different environment. What do you think has occurred? Well, um, I note that, and it's almost a cliffhanger at the end of the book, because the last chapter of the book, Chapter 6, really ends with um, urban renewal. And I think you have to go back and understand the historical context of urban renewal to understand, in part at least, uh, what has happened today. So if I could take a minute to talk about that, Rick. That's why you're here. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely, yes. Please. I intentionally ended the book with urban renewal, first because it was part of the history of the East Side, right? Yeah. But also because there's a broader American story here that this community represents. Uh, the Housing Act of 1954, and I won't go into a lot of detail, but this is, a, this is the connection. The Housing Act of 1954, uh, the, the federal government bill introduced urban renewal as a broader, more comprehensive approach to prevent uh, the growth of slums. Arguably, these urban renewal policies produce mixed results. So renewal efforts successfully demolished thousands of slums in cities across the nation. Um, however, the methods and approach were questioned and inadequate in meeting the needs of the urban poor. So I wanted to capture the result of such policies here, and more importantly, that these communities were not only brick and mortar and houses, they were places where people called home, uh -huh. and that there was a thriving social and economic foundation on the east side community that was affected by demolition at the time. So I ended the book where I started. The voice of the community, they expressed to me that the planned improvements in their neighborhoods also resulted in a breakdown of the social and economic fabric of their community over time. So what you're seeing today is um, it's, not a, it's not a snapshot. Uh, it's not a point in time. It's an evolution of uh, changes that has happened in this community, starting with um, uh, what I just described uh, in the urban renewal period. And it's, and it's the case in many black communities throughout the nation. Can you be a little more specific on uh, urban renewal and how that led to this decline? Yeah, well, basically, when, you know, you remove properties, um, people have – it creates a, an effect. It's a ripple effect. So you demolish properties. People have to either find somewhere else to live or figure out how to rebuild. Um, and so demolishing the slums was critical. Um, uh, declining properties are necessary for removal, um, but replacement and rehab should be the subsequent result. Um, so I think, you know, so there is a, a housing aspect to all of this around renewal, um, but I think that once a community changes, 
um, the people that continue to live there begin to experience that change as well. And sometimes it's for the better and sometimes it's not. Um, so, so what you see now on the east side um, is an evolution of decades of that change. The thing I wanted to uplift in my book, however, Rick, is that um, the institutions that I note in the book, many of them are still there. So they have not left the community. Um, People Settlement Association, the mm -hmm. Walnut Street Y, right? Um, many of the historic churches, um, St. Michael's uh, School and Nursery, at the time called St. Michael's School for Colored Children. Um, these institutions are still there to serve the community uh, in a way to help continue to maintain the stability of the of this community. So, so, so that's why I think it was important for me to say, what did it look like, and hopefully serve as an inspiration um, for families that continue to live there and for what this community has the potential to be. Yeah, I know we could look at some certain icons in the city of Wilmington and recognize the fact that their structures exist. And because of their existence, it's destroyed neighborhoods. And I speak specifically about I-95, you know, Eisenhower's big program to put highways, interstates all through the country. You did right. that. No one wants to live near there, and it's terrible. Uh, we go back something more generally, though, that happened around the country. And something that you put in your book here, it reminds me of reading stories and watching movies of the big band era, where you had a big band, and the leader was a white guy. Okay, mm -hmm. we're talking about those specific bands, uh, and and it had a diverse membership of musicians. Some black musicians, white musicians. They would go to a hotel. The hotel said, "I'm terribly sorry, but uh, we can't have any black folk here in this hotel." And then the band leader or the tour manager would say, "Oh, okay, we're going to go to a different hotel then." And I loved that. I thought, you know what? That's strong. That's that's uh, that was. Yeah. I, I just was very impressed by that when I was a kid. And then I see here, let's see, page 53 in your book, The Negro Motorist Green Book. Now, I will tell you, as a white guy, I, I actually uh, uh, find some discomfort in using the word Negro even mm -hmm. today, right? Because we talk about people of color, um, black and, and white and such like that. But it has to be said because that's the name of this book. Tell us what this green book was and why it's so significant. Well, that's a great question, and thank you for that. Um, it is an unfortunate evolution of why this publication had to come about, right, um, because blacks could not uh, dine, could not lodge, could not socialize uh, in institutions that were um, predominantly white. Uh, so segregation was very real. So as a result of that, uh, the Green Book was um, founded by Victor Hugo Green. He, it is the Green Book. It's his last name. He was a businessman, and he founded the Green Book. Um, the first publication came out in 1936, and he maintained that publication every year for 30 years um, through the end of – or very close to the end of segregation. So uh, from 1936 to 1966, during the Jim Crow era, this book was published annually. So it, um, it was a travel guide that all, most African Americans, if not all, were recommended to have – um, if they plan to travel um, and plan to, to, to dine or, or even uh, stay at any hotels throughout the nation. Uh, and all of this is uh, because of racism that resulted from uh, prejudice and legal discrimination during segregation. Um, so the book itself, it mapped out black-owned businesses, restaurants, barbershops, hair salons, nightclubs, hotels, you name it, where blacks could stay across the nation. Um, and 
the reason why I really wanted it to be in this book related to the east side is because two businesses are highlighted in the 1940 publication and the edition and the 1954. And uh, the first is Irma Lawson. The Lawson Hotel was located uh, at 208 Poplar Street at the time, so a black-owned female business owner. Um, And then also Butler uh, Tonsorial Parlor uh, is, is noted in the Green Book as well. So I wanted to uplift those two businesses uh, that reside on the east side. If I could say a word about Irma Lawson, because uh, it was really exciting working with her family to get the photos uh, of the photo of her, which shows up on page 51. Um, She always asked that whoever stayed at her hotel would sign in in a book, and you see that on page 52, the adjacent page to the Green Book. Oh, I see see an autograph here of uh, someone... uh, who I used to listen to on uh, my my dad had jazz records, and uh, and this guy was featured on a couple of the albums my dad had, but I'm not going to give it away. I'll let you say it. Okay. So, yes, it's Lionel Hampton. The great vibraphonist. Yes, indeed. Right. And so um, whenever he'd come to town from New York City, oftentimes he'd stay at the Lawson Hotel uh, for the reasons I mentioned. And uh, she'd always she'd always ask she'd always ask whoever comes to visit, uh, you have to sign my book. And so I have uh, the pleasure from the family of Irma Lawson. They uh, allowed me to publish his actual signature in the signs of my friend's uh, sign-in book from the Lawson Hotel. So that's a really special uh, photograph for me uh, there. And he also noted her in a uh, newspaper article in Pittsburgh how close a friendship he has with uh, Irma Lawson. So, so it's special to, to the east side, and it's special to uh, the family. I also want to mention one other thing. The um, reason why I did this, I think, I need to mention this. My husband's family is from the east side, <laughs> um, his grandparents. And so um, they're also noted in the book, my, husband, my, my father-in-law, Coleman E. Smith, as well as uh, his, uh, my husband's grandparents. Um, my husband's uh, grandfather was a really renowned chef at Winkler's Restaurant, which was uh, on on French Street. So he and his wife were very much, uh, very well known uh, for their uh, down home cooking uh, at Winkler's. So nice. much so it was noted in the a 1963 a News Journal article. Cool. Um, I'm going to have you on again because we have a problem on our phone line. Clicks and pops. I noticed it at the beginning of the conversation, and I was not going to call off the conversation, despite, oh. the, despite the fact that we have some problems. Because as soon as this, this hit my desk on Friday, and I thought, whoa, this would be perfect for Martin Luther King Day. Uh, let's get you on the phone and talk on a Monday. You were busy with events all day long. And then I, I realized this is good for any day. <laughs> you know, it really is because it's something that we need to know, an important part of, uh, of our history here in Wilmington, too. So... Uh, I will podcast this. There are clicks and pops in it. It's our fault. It's at our end of the phone here at the radio station. And for those two reasons, uh, first of all, I think it's something people need to know about. And second of all, I want to do a make good because of the clicks and pops. I hope that you will join us again for a similar conversation another time when our phones don't have clicks and pops. Oh, no, that's perfectly fine. Um, Yes, indeed. I'd be happy to, Rick. No problem at all. Good. Good. it's a called it's called African Americans Wilmington's East Side by Dr. Hera Wright Smith. That's her on the phone. 
Any last words? Anything else that you think people ought to know about we didn't get to yet? Well, just know that the book is available, um, you know, and uh, it was released to the public. And please purchase a copy, and I'd be happy to uh, do a book signing or, or even t- have a book talk about it just to educate the community. There so, we go. We'll have you in the studio, and you can autograph a couple copies for producer Randy and myself. There we there go. There you go. Thank yeah. you, Rick. No, and then we'll sell it on eBay because it has Lionel Hampton's signature. Right. How about that? <laughs> no, no, that's uh, that, that's brilliant. Uh, so I know it's at uh, ArcadiaPublishing.com. Uh, also, Amazon, other places. Yes, Barnes and Noble uh, online purchase right now. Barnes and Noble, Target uh, stores, uh, Arcadia Publishing. Um, yeah, those are the the primary primary and Amazon. Yeah. Perfect. African Americans, Wilmington's East Side. Well done. Thank you, Harry. I really appreciate the time, and uh, you tell a great story. Thank you, Rick, so much. Nice meeting you. Take care.